0: Hi, everyone. This is Free Food for Thought, a student run, student focused podcast here to feed your curiosity. I'm Sabrina.
1: And I'm Simon. And today we're sitting down with Catherine Mangi Ward. Catherine Mangi Ward is editor in chief of Reason, the magazine of free minds and free markets. She started as Reason as an intern in 2000 and worked at the Weekly Standard and the New York Times before returning to Reason. Mangi Ward is a graduate of Yale University, where she received a BA in philosophy and political science. At Reason, she leads a publication that covers issues important to libertarian values. Her writing has included commentary on issues ranging from the ethics of non-voting to job automation to plastic bag bands. She is a co-host of the Reason Roundtable podcast. Maggie Ward's writing has appeared in the Wall Street Journal, the Washington Post, the Los Angeles Times, and numerous other publications. She is a current commentator on radio and television networks such as National Public Radio, CNBC, C-SPAN, Fox Business, Fox News Channel, and MSNBC. She's a future tense fellow at New America. Thank you for joining us, Ms. Maggie Ward.
0: Thanks for having me on. So, Mango, Ms. Mango Ward, one of the few questions that we like to ask our interviewees is a question about an, an inflection point in their lives, perhaps a point where they had to pivot from where they were from the trajectory of their lives they were currently on, either personal or professional, or maybe even a mix of both. Do you think you could share a moment with us?
2: So I would say the story of my adult life has been one of a surprisingly straight trajectory. Um, That's not at all common, I find, um, especially among journalists who tend to be seekers. They tend to be people who maybe take a couple of different paths before they wind up where they are. Um, I can arguably trace the job I have today, which is the editor of a libertarian magazine to a book I read when I was 15. Um, it was just to fully live the cliche, the Fountainhead." head. Um, Ayn Rand is uh, for better or for worse, a sort of major recruitment vector into libertarianism. I think that was more true um, in the nineties when I was a teenager, but um, in many ways the job that I have today is exactly the job that 19-year-old me desperately wanted. Um, and so, you know, in a way, I think I'm, I'm going to do a terrible job of answering your question, which is I haven't had a lot of pivots. I guess I, I will say that initial reading of Rand and kind of opening up my mind um, to the ideas of political philosophy and, um, and the sort of economics of free markets um, was itself a pivot. I was raised in, a, in Washington, D.C., I was raised in a good, um, liberal, democratic home by uh, parents who uh, were very typical DC types. And uh, though I still live in Washington DC, uh, the, the hopes that my parents might have had for me, I would say, have not come to fruition. Yet. So in that sense, there's your pivot.
1: OK. Um, so like I guess, did, did growing up in DC, influence your politics in any other way other than just kind of, uh, I guess, becoming kind of the antithesis of of what your parents were?
2: Sure. I mean, I I think the thing about uh, Washington, D.C. is that people use it as synecdoche, right? Sometimes when you're reading articles about politics and policy, people say, you know, in Washington, D.C. today, this was decided. Um, And that's really, um, you know, it's a false picture of the city in so many ways. D.C. is a very Diverse and interesting place. And I think living here has kept me from depersonalizing government. I think it's easy both to think, well, policymakers are going to do the right thing. Those guys know what's up, they're the experts. And, you know, I can see those guys in the bars around here, or at least I could before COVID, and uh, they're just a bunch of dummies like the rest of us. Uh, at the same time, I think libertarians can often think, oh, everyone in DC is evil. And that's not true either. Um, People who run the government are human beings and they are fallible in the way that humans are fallible. I knew that growing up and I still see it every day um, or again, used to uh, back when I left my house.
0: So to follow up on that point, how have you balanced your personal life versus your professional career, being constantly surrounded by essentially the material or like the topics that you write about for for your uh, journalism um, profession, essentially?
2: Yeah, I think it is hard um, as a journalist to to not always be on or not always be engaged. Uh, You know, I know lots of people who are always trying to do technical workarounds. To that solution, so they say. You know, oh, I, I leave my phone outside the bedroom, or I don't, you know, log on to Twitter until this time of day. Uh, I will say I am not a compartmentalizer in that way. I just kind of accept that my personal life and my professional life and my recreational interests are all one and the same. Um, and I think you know, if that doesn't make you unhappy, then it's fine. I mean, this is sort of the flip side of the ideal that. You know, it doesn't, doesn't feel like work if you love what you do. Now, of course, my job still feels like work a lot of the time uh, and maybe more so this year than ever before. But um, I just don't mind that my professional life and my personal life kind of uh, interrelate very deeply. Um, and, and for me, that, that works out well. And it means, I hope, that occasionally I'm finding story ideas or making story assignments or meeting a writer or a freelancer or a source um, at a time when I'm not looking, uh, it's actually, you know, sometimes better to have a little bit of serendipity built into your stories and the places you look for stories. Um, because if you only look where you expect to find stories, you're always going to find the same stories.
1: Um, kind of switching gears a bit. What is your least libertarian position?
2: Uh, I'm a perfect and flawless libertarian, so I don't know what you're talking about. Um, no, I, you know, I think, um, well, so I don't know if this is my least libertarian position, but I will say, um, you know, there is, there's a lot of disagreement among libertarians, well, about everything, but, um, but also uh, more narrowly about what to do right now. Um, you know, a pandemic, uh, an infectious, airborne infectious disease is a great test of the theoretical limits of the limited state. And, uh, and maybe even a test of the limits of the coordination powers of markets. And so this is something that's actually been really interesting and kind of invigorating um, internal to libertarianism is to talk about how, how we make those calls. Now, I would say something like um, The story of coronavirus so far has been a story of government failure. And that's not surprising, right? Like there have been a bunch of places where powerful state actors have done the wrong thing and that's caused huge problems. So there I would say, look, I was right about everything. Everything is confirmed. At the same time, I think, um, you know, to say, okay, listen, say you think there is a role for a minimal state and we should have lockdowns at this moment, some form of lockdowns. Um, I think then there's an interesting challenge, which is like, if the government forced your business to close, should you get money from the government? Is that essentially a takings, right? Is that, a, is that an example of, um, of, of an instance where stimulus or compensation from the state at a very large scale might actually make sense? I, I am at least open to that argument. And I think there's almost nowhere where I would otherwise say like, Cool, an emergency spending bill of $2 trillion. (laughs) Um, So, you know, this has been an interesting test of some of those priors. Um, The other place I will flag is uh, I, you know, I think I have seen, uh, especially among younger people who are coming into the libertarian movement. I just had my 40th birthday, so I am now officially an old grumpy libertarian. But um, among younger people in the libertarian movement, there's a real influx of pro-life libertarians. And I think that's an interesting twist. Um, I would say more traditionally people have said, listen, um, it's not the government's business, what I do with my body, whether it's put drugs in it or have an abortion. There you go. That's the libertarian position. But um, I think there is a defensible case to be made by some libertarians that the government's role minimally is to protect life and that it's actually an empirical question um, rather than a moral one. Um, so that's an interesting uh, sort of change within the movement to me. I'm on the pro-choice side, um, partially because of my radical skepticism that the state can ever do anything right, but, um, but that, is, that is a place where reasonable libertarians can disagree that I find a very fruitful avenue to explore differences.
0: So just kind of bouncing off of that question, most of our listeners tend to be college students. And so I was wondering if you had any um, suggestions or thoughts about some perhaps criminally underlooked issues that college students who are interested in in public policy should pay more more attention to.
2: I guess I would go a little bit um, macro in my response. And I would say, that you really shouldn't, as a college student, listen to people who tell you that an issue that you're interested in is too much of a reach to be practical. When I was an undergrad, people thought it was hilarious that I argued frequently and regularly for legalizing drugs. Like that was just like, you adorable idiot, good luck with that. And, you know, not to say I told you so or anything, but we're kind of in the middle of legalizing drugs right now. It's a pretty big deal. <laughs> um, I think the same thing is true with gay marriage. You know, when I was growing up, the idea that um, the country would tip so dramatically and so rapidly into the category of, um, you know, the vast majority approving of and, and you know, the government legalizing gay marriage, honestly, almost laughable. Um, just so outside of the realm of what people consider to be possible. Meanwhile, lots of much more pragmatic policy goals that people have espoused, like, oh, we need to, you know, reform our entitlement system, or we need to draw down our foreign presence overseas. Um, You know, that those seem like reasonable policy goals. And if anything, we have moved even farther from any scenario in which we could achieve them. So I would say like, don't let the arguments about what is pragmatic influence what you work on or advocate for or study because people are not good at predicting the future and uh and so you should instead just god help me i'm about to say follow your heart follow your interests do do what actually (laughs) appeals to you and what you think is important um and don't don't listen to the haters
1: Um, and I guess like a corollary to that question is, are there any issues that you think are kind of like over discussed or over studied that we should probably just stop talking about now?
2: Um, I guess I've just positioned myself to really not be in a good place to answer that question since I've, I've said ignore people who make predictions. But uh, I will say I genuinely don't understand the obsession with the universal basic income. This sort of like Andrew Yang, this is gonna solve all our problems, solution. Um, There are even many libertarians who who like that idea, who think that it has promise. And maybe I'm wrong, and that's where we're headed. But um, to me, it's pretty clearly going to be an and, not an or. That is, if we end up with something like a universal basic income, we're going to layer it on top of our already overcomplicated, opaque tax and subsidy system for individuals. And so it's not going to do any of the things that are important to me. Um, you know, what I would like to do is see systems where um, there's less distortion in the markets, where there's more clarity for individuals, where there's less wasted effort on compliance. Um, all those reasons theoretically make a universal basic income appealing, um, but I am deeply skeptical that we can actually uh, pull that thing off. So uh, I would say that's one area. Um, you know, The other is um, kind of the, the broader question of how we see the us's role in the world right there is this sort of very very important question of how interventionist we are abroad um the inertia in the halls of congress in particular is so strong it is so hard to draw down our presence anywhere um, that i really admire and appreciate the people who invest effort there but I personally am out of juice on that issue. (laughs) Um, And, you know, I I will always say, you know, we should be dramatically less involved in the affairs of other nations uh, across the board, but the advocacy on individual conflicts, especially under the Trump administration, um, where he sort of has frequently talked a good game and then done the opposite, um, I, I have found it to be an exhausting
0: cycle and it's not one that was unique to Trump. So moving away a little bit from the political science or political philosophy of your work, and a little more in the ju- through the journalism lens, it's no secret that there, has, there seems to be a lot of upheaval in journalism over the past few years. And perhaps with the most quintessential example being the controversy surrounding Senator Tom Cotton's op-ed in the New York Times, how have you navigated this shifting landscape as a leader in the field of journalism?
2: So I think that's a great way to phrase the question because I think those two things are related. The idea that um, there is this important debate about the appropriate limits of expression in the pages of a particular publication and the broad-based upheaval in the industry, um, those things are inextricable. So I would say um, Reason Magazine has been a nonprofit um, since, I think, 1978. I love it that people are now discovering the model of nonprofit journalism and how it can work for them uh, because because it really has worked well for a reason. Um, I think it's also important for us, we are not only a nonprofit, we have many mid-sized donors. We get some institutional support, but we also just have a lot of people who support us um, because they like what we do. What that means is that we're not beholden to any one supporter. Um, And we are also not beholden to, um, you know, the ad server algorithm that uh, Google is using. We are not beholden to advertisers. Uh, It actually just makes a lot of space for us to do the kind of journalism that we think is important. Um, I think the mission of an op-ed page, uh, or at least the mission of the New York Times op-ed page as it um, was historically understood is to let lots of voices be heard. I think the Tom Cotton op-ed, which walked right up to the line, if not explicitly advocated, deploying <laughs> deploying US troops on, on domestic soil was appalling. I think it was genuinely one of the worst ideas I've read in a long time. I also think it was appropriate for them to run it. This was not some wacko. This was a sitting Senator. This was someone who we need to know what they believe. We need to know what's going on. Um, and so I think, you know, that's, to me, that's the line where I always want to be um, walking when I'm reading an op-ed page of a major newspaper. I don't think that's the same obligation for an ideological publication like Reason. So Reason says, hey, here's our thing. We do free minds and free markets. We're a libertarian paper. We're a libertarian magazine. We're a libertarian website. We're a libertarian YouTube channel. We have a libertarian podcast. Um, everything that we do is going to be through that lens. It doesn't mean that we don't, bring in voices of people that we disagree with. We do that all the time, but we are explicit about our point of view. Um, And another exercise that we do that we just did is every election, we ask our staffers to say who they're voting for and we publish it. It's not required. If you don't want to participate, you don't have to. But for us, it's an exercise in transparency. Hey, readers, you're here. You might be interested in knowing where we're coming from. This is who we're voting for. That's not the sum total that doesn't tell you everything about us, but it's interesting information. And I think for instance, if the New York Times had done that, you would find an overwhelmingly democratic newsroom um, which is relevant to the question of how people reacted to a bad Republican op-ed. So um, you know, I think more transparency, more diversity of voices, I definitely would have supported, running four more op-eds after the cotton op-ed about why that op-ed was really bad but i don't think running it was a violation of the principles of the newsroom
1: um maybe a quick follow-up uh is does reason have any other idiosyncrasies that you're particularly proud of beyond just being kind of like the premier libertarian publication
2: uh that's a good question i mean we were we were quite early as far as these things go in pivoting to video. Um, There's sort of a joke in the news industry, in the journalism industry, uh, pivot to video and then pivot to dust um, because a lot of publications um, didn't didn't execute that super well. Um, We got into video very early. Um, We also actually got online very early. We were a print magazine for a long time and uh, started a a website back when that was novel before my time, um, relatively early for our genre, we give everything away. I would say that's the other thing that um, people might not expect. Oh, you're a libertarian magazine. How can you be a nonprofit and give stuff away for free? Um, For us, that's very consistent with our mission. Our goal is for people to read what we write and and listen to what we have to say and watch what we produce. Um, For us, that means that while we do have for instance, subscribers to the print magazine who get earlier access to articles, in the end, because we are a 501c3, because we are mission-driven, what's really important to us is that our ideas get out there, that maybe the right state legislator reads it and introduces a bill, maybe the right uh, lawyer reads something and takes on a new client, just things like that are one of the ways that we measure our success. Uh, And that also keeps us, from constantly chasing clicks. Uh, I actually think chasing clicks gets a bad name. There's nothing wrong with trying to provide the market with what it wants, but um, it can lead to bad incentives if it's not bounded by something else. And for us, that something else is our mission and our hope of kind of making change in the world, making more space um, for the ideas of limited government and you know, kind of thinking and talking about the power of markets. So um, for us, that means we give it all away.
0: So Ms. Manguward, we currently have the privilege of conducting this, doing this interview with you after your ath talk at Claremont McKenna College. And after um, we've seen the events unfold of the U.S. presidential elections. During your ath talk, a lot of people, students and professors Parents, alumni, all challenged you about your position on why it's okay to not vote. Um, And you've shared very thoroughly and extensively about your views on the matter. But I was wondering after seeing how tight certain races were during the elections, do you still think it's okay to not vote? Or is there some sort of minimum threshold where? that is reached in certain, like in the certain stakes, or the like, the closeness of um, of like certain results that at that point you would change your mind.
2: Yeah, I I really enjoyed giving that talk. It was a really good crowd. The questions were super good, um, and that's not always the case on that topic uh, because people feel very strongly about it. Um, as you mentioned, I sort of broadly made the case why. Uh, it is not kind of morally incumbent upon everyone to vote all the time uh, and why it may even be better not to vote in some cases. Um, it typically happens uh, when I'm talking with people about this topic that that the eventuality of a close election comes up. And it did even before the election, uh, even though at that time people were anticipating more of a, um, a blue wave than what uh, materialized in the end. Um, you know, I think it's, it's the same problem, which is that it's difficult to accept kind of the quantitative fact that even though these, uh, even though there were you know some races that were quite close in some states, it, none of them were one vote close. None of them were even a handful of votes close. Um, and that really is what we're talking about. I don't have 10,000 votes. So if the race is within 10,000 votes, me voting still doesn't sway the outcome. Um, And I I know that that's, it feels unsatisfactory and the closer the election, I do think the more of an imperative there is to vote. I just think the election has to be very, very close before that kicks in. Um, That's why in my articles about this and in my talk about this, what I say is the rule is actually not don't vote. The rule is if you have a genuinely reasonable belief, that your vote might influence the outcome of the election and you care about the outcome of the election, feel free to vote. Um, but I just don't think that those conditions obtained even in 2020, even in the close races. Um, and for me, the second part is important. You know, I, I was no fan of Donald Trump, obviously did not vote for him. Um, and yet um, I have real questions about what kind of president Biden will be and what kind of policies will be enacted under his administration. And I think that matters, you know, to say one guy is worse than the other, I think true. To say one guy is good enough that I'm gonna go out and vote for him, Biden didn't get me there. Um, And I know that that's not gonna be true for everyone um, and that for many people voting is a symbolic act. They wanna be part of change. But in terms of the fact that this election was close, Lots of elections are pretty close. America is split 50-50, as we saw again in 2020. Uh, People are about half-sies. no matter what choice you give them uh, between the two major parties. That doesn't actually avoid either the quantitative or the moral argument against voting.
1: Okay, so we're kind of brushing up towards the end of the interview, so our last question is going to be stolen straight from your podcast. which is what's a bit of culture that you've been consuming recently that you would recommend to college students?
2: So that is a a great one. Uh, We do this, as you mentioned, at the end of the Reason podcast every week. Um, And, uh, you know, it produces a weird list of ephemera. Um, So I I feel like a little bit of an obligation to produce something like slightly more, with a little more staying power for this one. But, um, you know, I think, Honestly, I would recommend, um, partially because I have been doing a little bit of uh, comfort rereading of some of my, fam- my favorite science fiction, um, I will always recommend uh, Neil Stevenson. And um, almost anything by him, um, my favorite book by him is Snow Crash, um, which is also uh, relevant to some of the conversations we had earlier in the podcast. It's a portrait of a place where the state is kind of Vestigial, essentially a, a you know a market anarchism. Um, I find that to be very interesting. It was very formative um, in my early years when I was thinking about um, how to answer the question: What does the world look like if government doesn't do the things government normally does? Um, and I think that's that's a question I would love for college students to consider a little bit more. Is it true that those things just don't get done, or will people figure out ways? Um, but almost anything by Neil Stevenson is my what I'm consuming recommendation uh, for your podcast today.
0: Unfortunately, that is all the time we have for today. Thank you so much, Ms. Manguard, for joining us. And to all our listeners, remember to stay hungry. Thank you.